This is Transistor.fm. Maybe my problem is I'm, I'm always curious if other people are living a better dream than me. That's probably a therapy, therapy <laughs> point you have to figure out. Yeah. That's why you're here today. Dude, if we can be each other's therapists, I'm down for it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Build Your SaaS. This is the behind the scenes story of building web apps in 2022. I'm Justin Jackson founder of Transistor. And I just finished chatting with Patrick Campbell, who recently sold his bootstrapped SaaS company, ProfitWell, to Paddle, the payment processing billing platform, for $200 million. Unbelievable story. I'm not going to say too much before we get into it. It was just an incredible conversation you, if you are bootstrapping right now, or you are about to bootstrap, or you have been doing it for years, you will get tons out of this conversation. Let's get into it. You know what I realized with bootstrapping? One of the major downsides is network. Not because like mm. we don't have a network, right? Because, But I think you have to actively build it or actively like discover the podcast, like all that kind of stuff. When you're venture backed, you just like, oh, here's like, I'm going to introduce you to three other, you know, portfolio company CEOs or founders or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of given to you, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's part of the, it's more part of the, the culture. Yeah. I mean, they're both, I think they're both like obviously terribly difficult and, the whole should you or shouldn't you, I don't know if it's worthy of debate, like in terms of funding, but like, yeah, it is one of those things that it's a downside that I thought of. Yeah. No, I think we should debate it. All right, fine. <laughs> are we jumping in? Are we in? Are we in this, the episode or what yeah, are we let's, doing? Let, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about it. So I've got Patrick Campbell here. Patrick, welcome. What's up, man? You just sold your company, Profit Well. I did a thing. To Paddle. To paddle, and I have now. I don't know if the video, but I don't know if we're using the video. But I have paddle yeah. gear behind me, all kinds of stuff. I'm wearing paddle shoes. That was quick. I got paddle. Wow. Black and yellow sneakers. Now was that that part of the deal that you wanted some sneakers with it too? Yeah, these eighty dollars sneakers were were like that was the deal point that we were going back and forth on. <laughs> no, I'm an all in guy, man. Like once I'm in, I'm all in. So yeah, it's one of those things that uh, I'm excited about. But yeah, sold the company. Uh, Join Paddle. I'm actually in their London office right now. Um, I've been here for about a month. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, this is the new studio. This is why I couldn't figure out focus and stuff like that before we started recording. Um, but yeah, it's been been a wow. good time so far. So you're already getting stuff done there. You're like, we gotta we gotta get the content machine running. If if only you knew. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a because there's a there's like integrating, you know, which is like. We brought everyone on board. So thank and thankfully, I mean, we were bootstrapped, so there wasn't a lot of like extra, if that makes sense. So it wasn't like we had a huge finance team, they had a huge finance team, that type of thing. Um, but then there's like a lot of storming and norming in probably good and bad ways, like good ways in the sense of like, oh, we're good at this, like let's bring that over here. Oh, like they're really good at that. Let's have them take over this. And um yeah. And so it's been, it's been kind of an interesting month, like, you know, that, uh, that we've been cranking and lots of fun, like 
trust building. Like, I don't think a lot of people with integrations realize, like, you kind of just assume you have this trust because you have it with your team that you've built over so long. And it's like, no, you're like in an arranged marriage now. You kind of have to rebuild it all, Um, which, you know, which is not so fun. So let's go back a bit. For people who aren't aware, you founded ProfitWell in 2012? Yep. So started 2012. Um, it wasn't always, yeah, it wasn't always in um, like SaaS metrics, right? You started doing something else first. Yep. So we were then called Price Intelligently. Um, we still have that brand and product. It's part of the ProfitWell suite. But um, we wanted to help folks um, with one of the biggest problems a lot of B2B folks have, which is their pricing. Um We had this Mm -hmm. little software app. A lot of people don't realize it started off as pure software. And then basically people asked us to do services on top of the software. And we were like, no, VCs don't like that. And then they basically said, we'll pay you a lot of money. And we were like, okay. So um, that's kind of what started this tech-enabled service, as it's called. And then um, a year or so into that, we knew we wanted to get to like a more ubiquitous type of software. And... um, we were helping a company that was about to IPO with their pricing and they were calculating MRR and churn incorrectly. And so um, we wanted more data. That was kind of a good moment of like clarity. And, you know, that's kind of when we started building our subscription financial metrics product. And we've now evolved into a number of different products that help you basically plug it in and it helps reduce your churn um, as well as some other stuff that we've been working around around pricing and stuff like that. And when you started the company, because it wasn't just you who founded it, right? There's there's quite a few of you, I think. Uh, no, it's actually kind of complicated. So it was it was I had part time co founders, which is not I would not suggest. Although I think you guys kind of did that. So I, I will. I will. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it's not a. Uh, it, it is not a built-in uh, key for success, I think. I think you guys knew each other beforehand. I didn't really know these guys, and um, everything's great. Yeah, I see three names besides you on the Crunchbase profile. Yeah, so yeah. There, it says there was four of you total. No, so here's here's kind of like the, the clearer way. So I, it was myself and these two other guys. Um, they were on our board the entire time, all the way up to the sale. They were advisors, but they never really came into the business and like worked full time on the business. And there was, there was some misaligned expectations. I don't, I don't think anyone's nefarious. I think like, you know, I was a first time founder, so pretty naive and all that kind of stuff. And they were like, you know, they had never founded anything before, like seriously founded anything before. So I think that like, it was one of these things where we're all kind of mixed together and everything worked out. We're brothers, all that kind of stuff. But it was, it was just me in a room for like 18 hours a day for the first like nine months. And then, that's when Peter was brought on, um, who might be listed in the Crunchbase article or wherever you're looking. And then Facundo was yeah. brought on a little while after that. And so I think that like it's complicated, but like if I'm referring to my co-founders, I typically am referring to Peter and Facundo, even though they weren't there like day one. And then um, the other guys are Got more it. advisors and board members, if that makes sense. Got it. And, and what were you doing before Price Intelligently, before 2012? Yeah, totally. So I started right out of school. I worked at NSA. I worked in the Intel community, which is fun to say, um, but it's it's not as sexy as it sounds. Uh, I was an Intel were, analyst. Were you a Boston grad, like a Boston University grad? No, I went to school. You were, you were in Boston, weren't you? No, not then. So I went to school in Illinois and then was in D.C. or in Maryland for that. What, what did you take? What did you take in university? Uh, I studied econometrics and math. 
So a lot of friends, okay. a lot of friends as a child, um, I had no, yeah, that's my joke <laughs> with that. But, um, what is econometrics? Uh, it's, I think a better way to describe what I did was, was more like applied math, like, um, like using math for some sort of outcome, if that makes sense, using con- economics for some sort of outcome. Honestly, like probably 90% of what I learned and studied was just not applicable, but it kind of taught you how to think, if that makes sense. Or okay, it, it's, it's kind of the, the way I described econometrics to some people is like, you know how like in elementary school, I don't know if they do this in Canada, but in the States, like at least they used to, when I was growing up, they would teach you that like Columbus discovered America in 1492, right? And then yeah. when you get to high school, they're, they're like, actually, it was a bit more complicated. There was like, you know, maybe these folks came down from the Nordics. And then when you get to college, you like learn Columbus was kind of not great uh, you know, or very debatable yeah. like, and all these other things. And yeah. also the Native American tribes coming off the Bering Strait. And you learn like how complex it is. Econometrics is basically like that, but for economics, meaning if you take a basic economics class, you learn supply and demand are these two straight lines. As you get into econometrics, you start to learn none of them are ever straight. They're all over the place. They they backward bend. They do all crazy stuff. So it's kind of like getting deeper. Um, a little tangent that so it's more four more, people more listening will appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then like if you love that, you go get a PhD. Um, if you hated that, uh, you don't. And so I was going to go get a PhD, but then I was like, I don't know. I'm not that into it. Um, that's what led to... Um, working for the Intel community. And then what brought me to Boston was, um, I wasn't really enamored with like the bureaucracy of, um, like the government basically, uh, even though it was one of the most fulfilling jobs. And so Google, I thought, Oh, a 30,000 person tech company, that'll be, that won't be bureaucratic at all. And so, uh, (laughs) yeah. And then after that, I jumped into the startup community. Basically I worked at a, um, a a venture backed startup right before ProfitWell. Okay. And so you start, Profit well. Uh, eventually, so and officially, you've got Peter and Facundo as your co-founders. Yeah. What does what does bootstrapped mean in this context? Did you each put in a bunch of money? Did you were you very lean? Um, like what 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 did that actually look like at the beginning? Those guys, you know, thankfully have always been paid. Uh, they didn't necessarily, so they didn't put in anything except probably not getting what they truly could get on the open market, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. For me, it was, I cashed in, I, I had a small 401k. I think it was like 14 grand, like, cause I was pretty, I was in my mid twenties or early twenties still, um, cashed it out, giant tax. Like there's a 40% tax on that, those dollars, something crazy. I can't even remember. And then basically lived on that for like six months and told myself if I couldn't, like get revenue or some sort of revenue within like six to nine months or like very clearly see a path towards it. Um, I could always find a job. And that was like a really big realization for me, especially coming from a very, like I come from a very blue collar family. Like the fact that I had left the government, Mm -hmm. let alone left Google, my parents thought I was insane. And then like when I jumped out, they were like, what is going on? And it, it, and I internalized that and I was actually like, worst case scenario, I can go be a construction worker. I could go work at a Starbucks, something like that. Yeah, but that was kind of our, our even funding. though you could have probably gone back to the government oh, or of course. Yeah, Google yeah, or somebody like else. Yeah, yeah. But I had to put my mindset in like uh I can always find a job. It might not be a job I want, um, but I could feed myself, which you know was was a, was yeah, a big thing. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. That's like the I've had a version of this, which was 
a lot of founders will say, um, I could never, now I'm unemployable. I could never go back to having a job. Yeah. And for a long time, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, if I needed to yeah. feed my family, I would go work at a Starbucks. I would do a double shift. Like, that. of course, if you had to, you would go back to employment. But there's a uh, psychological trick there, which is, you know, if you can imagine yourself going back to Starbucks and going, well, that's the worst case scenario is is me working at a Starbucks or whatever. Um, wouldn't be awesome. Yeah. But, you, you know, there's it's still like uh, there's still be ways for you to make money. And the truth is, is that, you know, most founders are actually more employable yeah. than they think they are, really. Yeah. It's a happiness thing, I think, too. I, I think that's what people mean is that... Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, of course. It's a happiness thing. Uh, although I think they also think they could just never have a boss. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I, I think I think you could. The right boss, you definitely could. Yeah, it's kind of the thing I worry about because I have a boss now, right? It, what was really interesting about it is that I think if you're running your company properly... And you're not like a, like you're trying to like grow, like you're trying to be a big company and you're running it properly. That's the caveat because not everyone's trying mm-hmm. to like grow really quickly or anything like that. I think that you have to run your team as if the team is the boss, meaning like your exec team or your, your co-founders, or your partners, whatever it is. It's like that team of rivals concept. Like Bob Iger, the Disney CEO for a long time, I think he talks a lot about this. Like everyone at the company or everyone at the exec team, like, what makes it great is theoretically each one of them could be CEO or could be a CEO, right? And that's kind of how I really felt about Peter and Facundo. And then when coming to Paddle, that was like a really big thing. There's a lot of founders on the exec team, like a lot of founders. Um, yeah. And so part of that's great, but part of that's probably not great depending on how you look at it. But that's how I, the whole boss thing kind of like allowed me to kind of like be comfortable with that because it's very... um it's very exec team, which is 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 better than like a very top down structure, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. This actually brings up a question I've always had about you and your company, which is uh, I think I you you're, you somewhere I heard you talking about this decision you made, whether you wanted to be a lifestyle company or a big ass company. Yeah, and you talked with the team, and you wanted alignment around this idea that. We want to go big. Yeah. Why did you want to go big? What was it about going big that was motivating for you personally? And what did and what did going big mean? Does going big mean capturing all the market? Does going big meaning having a big exit? What what was the discussion around that with you and the team? The reason we had that discussion is because it's so crucial in how you make decisions. And I think that we mm-hmm. we like to think that it's not we like we the the royal we if you will like we like to think that like yeah oh like where you want to go as a company it doesn't matter as much just make decisions along the way but like the way you make decisions around sales the way you make decisions around team structure who you hire all of these other things like is very much predicated on like the type of company you want like if you want in in I don't know what the other word for lifestyle, like lifestyle businesses, I don't think it should be a pejorative, but some people are, you know, use it as a pejorative. I, I, I think it's like, if you want a great business that like, you know, gets to a, an amazing lifestyle and that's kind of what you want, it's, 
you're going to hire more contractors. You're going to hire, you're going to hire less people, right? If you want to create like a large company, like you're going to hire people, like you have to, right? And you need leaders, mm-hmm. right? And those are expensive, right? Like yeah. those, and that takes money out of the business. And, you know, for, for us, it was, it was also around like, you know, I think the average amount I made over the past 10 years, like the average was $71,000 a year. Um, mm-hmm. in more recent years, I was making my, my salary before the acquisition was 150, um, annually, which is quite low for like, I was surprised when I saw that I, I saw you tweeting about your salary and I was like, wow, like, cause you've built this big company, this big brand that is quite recognized. And in some ways that salary kind of structure was more similar to my friends who have been at funded startups. Like the funded startups and the, the investors are like, hey, you got to grow, like keep investing this back in. Don't take too big of a salary, you know? Um, and a lot of successful bootstrap people I know who are, let's say, over the million dollar ARR yeah, mark, yeah, yeah, yeah. they pay themselves really quite well. well. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, 200s, 300s, 400s, even up to a million. So I was surprised by that. But that's the thing, right? Yeah. Because if we wanted to be a lifestyle business and- again, not pejorative, like that's what we were going to do. We were going to be like, great, let's set, you know, let's do profit first. Let's do distributions. Let's do these types of things. Like, but if we're trying to create a big ass company, it's like, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to like, instead of like paying myself, you know, that extra 50 grand or something like that, we're going to hire a BDR. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that type of thing. And there's a point where it's detrimental. Like, I think that we probably should have, increase the salary sooner because I do think it actually caused detrimental decisions. Mm. But I think it's one of those things where that's, that's the reason we had to have that conversation because it it affects so many decisions. And I think on the, again, like where we stayed when we went to conferences, like the team, one of Mm -hmm. the biggest jokes was like going out of this transaction was Patrick is never going to book our travel again. Thank God. Because I would book travel (laughs) and like, you know, I wouldn't book the super eight, but I wasn't booking like the four seasons or anything by any means. And it's not like paddles doing that either, but it was like, I would book yeah. like if there was a spirit airlines and it was not a long flight, you were going on spirit airlines. Right. I was, but also me, like I was going on spirit airlines too. Right. And so I think that was yeah. a big thing. Now, now why a big ass company? Like you're asking, you know, it's funny. Like I, Josh barometrics, Josh tweeted, you know, the other day about, how like Josh and I are very similar in so many different ways. When he tweeted about his glow forge, I was like, I have a glow forge. Like there's a lot of these little things, like he likes the West Wing. I like the West Wing. Like there's a lot of these things. We're also just like, you know, white guys of the same age basically. So I think that drives a lot of it as well. <laughs> but one of the things that he tweeted that I'm just like so the opposite of, not in a judgmental way, it was just like, he has a lot of side projects. He has a lot of like things. He likes to start things. I think he, he learned that, you know, he needs to treat his main thing like a main thing, you know, based on his tweets. But for me, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Like I'm all in, like I'm all in. And I think it, I don't think it's healthy always, but I'm like all in to the point where like, I can't have like a side hustle. I can't have some of these things. I need to like go, 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 go at one thing. And and maybe I learned to kind of like relax a little bit, but I'm very much like a singular focus. And so, yeah, I didn't necessarily want a lifestyle business because I think a lifestyle business, it's not that there's people listening to this where it's like, it is all in and it's a lifestyle business still. And that's fine. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is like, if we got to a certain point, eight figures in revenue and I'm treating it like a lifestyle business, like it's, 
I think that'd be really hard for me. Um, and thankfully the guys are, are, are similar thinking. And so it was more of an all in. And I, and I also like believe, and this is not a judgmental statement. This is a very personal statement. Someone described it as like, like, like there's, there's almost this like David Goggins nature of SAS, like how I approach things in the sense of the struggle. Like I'm very much like, if it's not a hard thing, then why are we doing it? Right? Like if it's not hard, yeah. like that's, that's the purpose. Like that's why we're on this earth is to like do hard things and grow. Right. Which is, you know, I, the David Goggins thing is almost like, I think he's mas- a masochist with some of these things. I'm not quite on that level, but it's more <laughs> of like, I, I think that there's this, this, this view I have of like trying to do something hard because it's worthy of doing it. Um, and that's kind of where my values yeah. sit, if that makes sense. So it's a very personal decision, I guess, the way I'm trying to say it. Yeah. And I mean, some folks, I, it's just unavoidable. The fact that Barometric sold for $4 million and you've sold for $200 million. Now, that must be a mixture of stock and cash, right? That's not all cash, is it? Uh, it's a mix. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think Paddle's even raised... Paddles raised maybe just under three hundred million or something. Yep. So there, yeah, there's no way they would have given paid out two hundred million in cash. That 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 uh, that's most of their their stores. Their uh, in their bank account. Yeah. Okay. So you've got you got a mix of of stock and cash, but still the exit is. It, it, there's people have been saying like, wow, this is a fifty times exit, and some people have. You know, Josh himself was like, well, here's why I think that happened. And he said, well, maybe it's because I treated Barometrics too much like a side project. Um, and there was some other things, too. He got he got locked into Stripe. Yep. And um, he was not freemium. You were freemium. Do you think that part of your... And I, in some ways, I'm, uh, I'm asking this selfishly, too, because another comment has been uh, around the acquisition of ProfitWell has been it's better to try to go out and own the market, mm. right? To try to become the dominant player. And, you know, you guys were clear that you wanted to be a big-ass company. Was that part of being a big-ass company? Was that you really wanted to own as much of the market as you could? Was that st- strategic? And is the strategy there, like, once you own the market, then you just have so much more leverage, or like, what was some of your thinking around that? Or was it simply the challenge? Like, let's just see how much of this, this nascent category can we develop and then, you know, become dominant in? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. I think that, so for one, I do think Josh is right in his analysis on a couple of things. Like, you have, it, you have someone treating it like a side project, and then you have me, who's insane. Like, you know, yeah. like in terms of like focus, like assuming the same intelligence, like one will win, right? And even without luck and stuff like that, right? So I think that that's, that's really tough. And I think that that's helped him. And I'm, I'm an investor in his next thing, maybe. And so I think that like, I, I think that's a really good lesson for him. And I think it's, it's a hard one because think of the introspection that he has to have to like, look at that, which is so hard, yeah. right? And I think that the other thing is like the lockup with Stripe, I think it points to an interesting situation because some of these markets are not big enough. Like they seem big. Mm -hmm. Oh, subscription companies everywhere. It's like, 
there are 150,000 max subscription companies in the world. That includes subscription media. Yeah. It includes subscription memberships, um, subscription SaaS, subscription consumer, enterprise subscription. There's 150,000 max. Like we're not talking about wow. e-commerce startups where there's like millions of stores and millions are coming on board like every couple of years, right? And so mm-hmm. what we did is we looked at that. We looked at all the competition and we basically said, okay, like analytics products inherently kind of suck to build because no one appreciates the work that went into them and they're not willing yeah. to pay anything for them. Like we did our pricing research on, on metrics cause we were going to charge for it. Like mm-hmm. it was originally going to be a paid product. And yeah, in all this context, we said we have to go up market, which that means hiring a lot of people and being a funded company. Um, or, mm-hmm. um, we have to do free, which probably should have meant we raised money. <laughs> like we probably should, cause we thought, oh, how hard could accuracy be? You know, which was, was famous last words. Right. So I think like that's what guided the decision to go free. And then the thesis became, we, we really like this concept of do it for you. So retain, the beauty of retain is that we do it for you. You plug it in and it's done. You don't have yeah. to write emails. You don't have to, and it's not because like, we don't want, it is kind of because we don't want your input. Like it's because we're studying everything. And because we have all this data, we can understand exactly what's good or bad. And then we do it for you. And you just, you don't want to become an expert in credit cards. You want to just understand like, great, it's fixed, right? I made more money this month than I should have because, or than I was going to because profit will fix it with retain. And that's where the data mode, yeah. like it wasn't a network effect of users and customers. That's what a lot of people think like, oh, they get upgrade pass. Like we certainly get that. And the brand really helped. But it was a network effect with the data when we were able to study that data and input that into products so we could build products that do it for you, like lowered your churn automatically. And so I think the mindset, it was just a mindset and a focus where it's hard to sell a product that's underappreciated just in general, like metrics in general. Mm-hmm. It's hard to sell that in a market where there is a viable free alternative where even if you like, you didn't really like the design as much because people love Josh's design or maybe Chart Mobile mm-hmm. had a couple extra features than we did. Like it's really hard to compete with it unless, you know, your product like is 10x better and there wasn't going to be a 10x better product in the market because we were going to keep moving. And I just don't think there can be a 10x better product in analytics in general. Yeah. And then there was also the risk, uh, which ended up coming true, which is, you know, Stripe, added analytics, uh, even PayPal added analytics. And Recurly, and other, there, it wasn't like this category was completely new. Like yeah. Recurly and other products had um, some of these analytics before. Your, your comment about the market being small is so interesting because this this gets back to something. I mean, people are tired of me talking about this, but the, the characteristics of a market the size, the shape, and the dynamics. And so maybe we could get into this a little bit. So you said 150,000. Yep. Um, and so, you know, let's say, you know, $99 a month, uh, if that's where you start, I think that's where Chart Mogul starts. And then, you know, if you captured 20,000 of that 150,000, which was, that's a fair chunk. Yeah. Um, you know, that's $2 million a month or whatever. Not, not a bad business, but, um, and we don't know what chart moguls metrics are. Do you have any idea of size? And like, if yeah. you guys were out to own the market, was ProfitWell number one by a large margin or did chart mogul have a significant portion as well? We have 30,000 subscription companies on ProfitWell. It's a 
now more than 30,000. Okay. And then Chart Mogul has one to 2,000. Barometrics had about a thousand, might be a little bit more, but yeah. So I, I think, I think the other thing to point out here that you kind of brought up is the physics of a market guides so many things like, yes. And a lot of people don't realize, like, even if let's say we just wanted to be a lifestyle business, we wanted a great business that like guided, you know, all of our lives made us all very wealthy. Everyone was like, you know, had really great profit from the entire company. We were a great company to work for, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 20,000 customers paying a hundred dollars a month. Oh my God, what a grind. Right. And I can yes. tell you right now for most of the market, a hundred dollars a month is too expensive. Like it's, yeah. it's insane. Right. And so what we, we basically like, honestly, the worst thing, like the thing we got wrong was the market. <laughs> like that's the thing we got right. Like it worked out. So I'm not complaining, but like we knew like, as we started getting into like, we're trying to be a big company. Like we knew our TAM was not big enough. Like our yeah. TAM, the way we monetize, And even though we were monetizing our leads better than anyone else in the space, because with retain someone who wasn't willing to pay $50 a month for metrics is willing to pay $300 a month because it's purely pay for performance. Right. So they're like, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have had this money and you're not, you're only taking, you know, a portion of the money I would have gained and I get to keep all the, all the money later. Right. So it's one of those things, yeah. like, even though we were, we were squeezing more out of this, this lemon than anyone else, it was one of those things that like, that's where this multi-product concept came to be. And also why, like, it was kind of appealing to sell too, because the billing systems just have an ability to monetize even better than anyone else because they can monetize the throughput, right? And so, yeah, there's a lot we can do with that with like retain as well as some of the other products we're building. But the advice to anyone else listening is like, don't underestimate the velocity of your market because even if you're building something that like is in a super competitive space, especially if you're building something in a competitive space, if the market's big enough, that's fine. Like you can make a great, Mm -hmm. like again, lifestyle business. But if you're in a market that is squeezed and it has competition, like go into another market. Um, Yeah. Unless you're really just glutton for punishment. Can we get into this a bit more? Because it feels like this is the area that that gets misunderstood a lot. And um, so you said TAM, which is total... Addressable market. Total addressable market. That's right. And so that's the, the idea there is how many uh, companies are in this market total, right? Essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. You can define it a little like bit how differently. how many participants or? Well, so there's a little bit, like, it's like all metrics, like you can kind of fudge with the definition depending on what you're trying to do, right? So yeah, there's 150,000 subscription companies. Maybe that's our total addressable market, but like, our realistic addressable market. Um, there's other, you know, acronyms people use. It's like, I can tell you out of those 150,000, 75,000 are just not addressable for us because they're they're enterprise companies. They're too big. They're, you know, they don't fit our billing systems. We support, uh, yeah, totally like all over the place. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's more about like, I think in an investor pitch or just in an adventure back company or trying to be a big company, you want a very large TAM because that means that the future, like if I just capture X percent of the TAM, right? Um, I think yeah. in a bootstrap company or a lifestyle business, you don't necessarily have to worry about, oh my God, I have to 
pitch something that has a huge addressable market. But if you have a very large addressable market, it's probably an indication of like the ease of your go-to-market strategy because yeah. everyone already has one of these things and I'm just going to sell a different one, you know, that type of a thing versus yeah. I'm trying to invent a market. You, and, and you also talk about the velocity. So what do you mean by velocity when you're, when you're, when you use that as a descriptor or the physics of a market? Uh, what are you talking about there? It's the number of logos in the market, like number of potential buyers. And again, it's mm-hmm. not like, like if we're selling in a subscription company, it's not every subscription company, or if it's like we're selling a consumer product, it's not every consumer. It's people who fit some sort of a segment. That's our addressable market theoretically. Um, mm-hmm. And the bigger that segment is, just the number of humans that theoretically will go to your landing page is just increased. And the number of humans yes. you're able to like market to, right? So the reason our strategy for marketing is what it is, is not because Patrick has a big ego and really likes to do podcasts. The reason yeah. it is, is because we need a brand. We need people to know who we are. And you don't get that through paid media. You get that through content. You get that through community. You get that through events. You get that through those types of things so that when you're talking to someone, Justin, about, hey, I need metrics for my subscription business, you go, well, you know, there's a couple, but I know is free, right? And so, yeah. you know, and Patrick's on the podcast and like, you should check it out, but also check out Bear Metrics and whatever. And then that's all I need. I just need you to refer to it yes. because when they get into the product, they're going to compare and contrast it. And the product is good enough, if not better in certain ways that they're going to stay, yeah. right? And so- that's that's what I mean is like if you are selling to like a fitness product, your TAM is huge because there's so many people are trying to get healthy and you can drive that through paid and through, um, you know, display ads and all these other things. You don't really need a brand. You don't really need content unless you're doing an SEO play yeah. in that case. And so that's what I mean by the physics is like how many people can you get through in a very quick manner um, into your funnel basically. And how important do you feel the – because even in your example – the physics there are that some people are already in motion. Yep. And so uh, I have this feeling like most of the success of a market, uh, of a product in a category, has to depend on how many people are already in motion. And I, it feels like m- many founders feel like you can motivate uh people who are not in motion to buy the product. So what's your take on that? Because in your example, there's two people in Slack and somebody is looking for SaaS metrics, which means they're already in motion. They already have a company. They already, like think of all the things they have to do to just get to the starting line of profit well, (laughs) right? So what's your take on that? Another huge mistake um, from us. Again, huge mistake. I'm not trying to be a jerk. It's just like, these are things that I know, like, if we had adjusted our thinking, we could have done better. Right now, in, like, the average subscription or SaaS company, depending on how you want to slice it, the median expenses that go to sales and marketing is 60%. 60%. So if I take 1,200 companies, I think the study was, I add up every dollar they're spending on everything. Toilet paper, ads, everything in between, right? And... of those dollars are going to sales and marketing. Now you throw in operations, you throw in like the desks and everything like that. How much money do you think is left over for retention 
and pricing, which are two mm. paid products. There's not a lot. Yes. And so we're literally like, we spent 10 years yelling about pricing and yelling about retention and mm-hmm. people get it. Like people find it important, but like we are constantly educating and we're fighting this inertia of, yes, there's five, there's 15,000 different sales and marketing pieces of software. Right. So there's a huge, hugely different problem there, but that's another thing, right? Yeah. Like we're not selling something like it's rare that someone like is looking for like Dunning or credit card failure software. Right. And we try to own those Mm -hmm. places obviously, but it's a lot of education. And I think that you're better off finding people in motion with something. So if I was just trying to like create, Oh, I'm going to work on something for six months and I want to get it to a hundred grand a year and like revenue. Right. Mm -hmm. I would focus on things where people are already in motion, huge TAM, meaning lots of people, we don't always build these things for money. I actually love like the SaaS and subscription community, like a lot, like I've, I've, you know, and so it's one of those things where like, it's not all about the money. It's not all about the TAM, but it's like, if I wanted to make it easy, those are the things that I would look for. And then the the third piece is lock-in. I would try to build a product that had lock-in. Like Mm -hmm. what's amazing about billing systems, there's so much (laughs) lock-in. Like people Mm -hmm. like, they install it and they're like, there's only a couple points in their history that they, they want to change it or are thinking of changing it. And that's a whole yeah. new problem for, for paddle now that or I'm discovering at paddle, but it's also the brilliance yeah. of like the Stripe Atlas program, like the brilliance of the Stripe. I always thought, oh, that's just them being nice and like, you know, giving back to the community. And, and part of it is, but another part of that program is once you got that Stripe account, like, why would you, why would you like do anything else? Right. And then normally we see people who reach like 700,000 a year to about a million a year. That's the next like then they're looking at charge B, recurly, paddle, et cetera. But um, yeah, yeah. The lock-in, if you can get lock-in is, is the third thing I would look for, but it's not as crucial as the first two. I don't yeah, know. the physics. I love that idea, that metaphor of the physics. Hey, do you want to start your own podcast? Head over to Transistor and use my coupon, transistor.fm slash Justin. You'll get 15% off your first year of podcast hosting. Because I, I'm trying to describe so many of the metaphors we use in startups, but especially in bootstrap startups, are incredibly two-dimensional. And so there's this idea of like this binary of charge more. And I've always been saying, no, there's way more nuance yeah. in, in pricing strategy. Like when I actually read academic papers on pricing, there's a ton of math Super that I do not understand with super tons of variables. And even if you wanted to, if you're a dumbass like me and you wanted to look at the price, that, like, should I charge more or should I not? There's a lot of places I'd have to look. Like, yeah. how is pricing anchored by the existing competition? Yep. Because if MailChimp is charging $49 per month hmm. uh, for whatever, a thousand subscribers, ConvertKit can't come in and charge 2,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, unless there's something significantly different. And, you know, Nathan's always anchored his pricing, I think, within 10% of MailChimp for that reason. It's like, you can't be too much higher, right? You know what's funny is, like, I think your statement of, like, the binary nature of a lot of advice is, like, something that we all need to learn sooner than later in our trajectories, right? Like you and I are baked, like we're, we're like, you know, thankfully we learned it, but I think like teaching that to some of, you know, if you're early in your trajectory, like learning that 
is so important. It, mm-hmm. it gets me, it, it grinds my gears about some of the Twitter bullshit that you see, like the advice and stuff, because it's like, it's the equivalent of like, drink eight water, eight glasses of water a day, stay hydrated guys. Like, and it's like, yeah, but it's really nuanced. Like I'm a large human. I need more water, you know, like I, you eat a lot of salt. I don't know if that's true or not. You need more like, and I think it's like, yeah, a lot of this advice is like pithy baloney, but all advice is more nuanced. It depends. Like I think freemium is the future, but should every company use freemium? Of course not right? Like, of course not. Like maybe in some way over the next decade, but that's, that's a big thing for everyone to latch onto is like, you have to take in the advice and then filter it through a framework for your business. Um, and I think not enough of us do that. And understanding that, um, again, the, the idea of the physics of a market, I just love that idea because, uh, the podcast market, podcast hosting market, um, has similar physics to web hosting, yep, but different in some notable ways. But we are most like web hosting. Got so it. when Ruben Gamez was giving me advice early on, he said, if I was you, I would look at web hosting because they're two decades ahead of podcast hosting. And likely what worked there, the dynamics that worked there, are also going to apply. And so for That's good example, advice. affiliates. Affiliates. That's really good advice. Is big, and it was big. Now, the dynamics of the podcasters, and he was also clear to say, and we knew this from the beginning, like the paid podcast hosting market is maybe a hundred thousand, yeah, two hundred thousand, something like that, and with a much lower average revenue per user than you know, we're high at our entry level, and our entry level is nineteen. Yeah. Uh, Libsyn's entry level is five. And so we knew that the physics of our market are defined by those boundaries. Yeah. And no matter how much I wish, like I could wish and wish and wish that this will be a billion dollar company, there's just no way it's happening. The, 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 the dynamics in this market are, it's impossible It's impossible the way it is right now for this to be a billion-dollar company. Now, the physics change all the time. Like we found with, uh, you know, Anchor, there was a worry with Anchor. Anchor has ended up being an incredible lead gen for Transistor in the same way that Substack's free email newsletter has been unbelievable for Nathan and ConvertKit. Yep, yep, yep. So all of a sudden, the physics change. Now, instead of 500,000 podcasts in the world some of which are free on free hosting or whatever. Now there's, in a matter of years, there's two and a half million or four million or something like that. And what does that mean? You know, the physics change. At the same time, you know, even with two and a half million podcasts in the ecosystem. Yeah. uh, But if you you ask me to place a bet on whether any of us were going to be a billion dollar company, even in 10 years, I would say, no, I wouldn't make that bet. Now, would I make a bet that uh, Paddle could be a $10 billion company in 10 years? I might make that bet because yeah. the, the, the dynamics of that market are so much the physics different. physics are different. In terms of physics, like never underestimate the entrant of a competitor on what it, like competitors entering your market historically make the market better. Like it's, yeah. it's you're, you're always scared and one of the things we would always say is like, like, again, nothing against our competitors, but 
like we haven't thought of them that much in the past couple of years because like, you know, 30,000, you know, then 20,000 or 25,000 yeah. versus one to two and they're monetizing differently. Our monetizable products are growing pretty rapidly. But like, it was one of those things where we were like, we need a really big competitor. We need a big one, like a serious big one because that trains the market in a way that you can't. Like I can't train the market fast enough as Stripe's metrics actually being like Stripe's metrics are not, I'll say it. Like I love the Stripe. They're not company. great. They're not great. Like they're inaccurate. Like they make some very obvious accuracy issues, but it is the bare minimum. They needed the bare minimum. And like, it's just one of those things that, that wasn't like amazing. And so it was one of those things that like, it would be cool if like HubSpot got into the space, right? Now I say that and then they get in yeah. the space and they have all the money and we're like, oh my God, right? But like, it, that's one of the things that like when you have competitors enter the market, it changes. The market changes. The the, the throughput yeah. is like now higher because all of a sudden that SEO you've built, people are starting to search for it more or your ads are getting more traffic or like those types of things. Now I will say though that like in the podcast hosting space, like, one question that's useful, if you want to build a big company, or even if you're just a bootstrap company, you're thinking like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to like just be bigger. What would it take my market to have a billion dollar exit? Whether it's me or someone mm-hmm. else, right? That's a big thing. And that's what guided us a little bit in the free conversations because we knew it wasn't going to come from metrics. And we knew like, well, what would it take? Well, yeah. we'd have to solve these six problems and blah, blah, blah. And that started where guiding where product basically went. But it's a good thought exercise. How much do you think, I mean, again, the dynamics of every market are different and could change yeah. literally one overnight. week to the next yeah. overnight. And, and you know, founders, I think, I think we think in bets. The question for me is like, for example, should Transistor try to go out and own the market? Hmm. Like right now, we, we have maybe 1.5% of the paid podcast hosting market. Hmm. That's my guess. Sure. But, you know, we're doing, we have a four-person company. Yeah. Everybody's paid very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's certainly um, threats. Sure. This was a debate I was having with uh, Dave Zorob at Ch- Chartable. And it, his answer changed depending on how things were going because we started yeah. our companies at about the same time. He went venture capital. Yep. He raised money. And we didn't. And so... He, the first six months, he was doing better because mm-hmm. he had money in the bank and he, you know, he wasn't suffering as much as John and I were. Yep, 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 yep. But then, you know, 12 months in, John and I are both full-time. We'd both quit our previous things. We're already making probably maybe even a better salary than Dave is at that point. Yep. And then since then, it's, you know, maybe Dave was looking at us going, man, I wish I'd done the bootstrap thing. Yep. But then he just sold to Spotify and maybe it changes again, yep, you know, yep, the, yep. The, the calculus. So how do you think through that stuff when, and, 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 and then also, and Dave was raising money because he wanted to own the podcast yep. analytics space. Yep. Not a huge market, but sure, sure. Um, he wanted to own that space and arguably he accomplished it. Arguably his timing was better than the six podcast analytics companies that had come before him. And so it paid off. How do you think about that calculus of, and clearly Chart Mogul has gone a different route. They, they don't want to own the market in terms of market share. Yep. Uh, they're, they're doing a different way. So how, how should people be thinking about that calculus? Is it 
Is it a strategic thing? Is it a personal thing? Should bootstrap companies try to own their market? I think there's two really important questions you have to ask yourself. One, the personal thing. What do you want, right? Mm-hmm. Like Dave, I don't know Dave, but like I could see a world where if I was in his shoes and I raised money and I went balls to the wall and I failed, let's say someone else came along, Spotify came out with their own stuff, you know, they have to shut the company down. Um yeah. There's a world where he learned those lessons and half the time you or I would learn those lessons with a bootstrap company, right? Because money money is speed, right? And so yeah. I think it's like, what do you want? Like, what do you, do you want the quickest path to learning, right? If you want the quickest path to learning, maybe fundraising is the right way to do it, right? And it's, it's never, like we were talking about before, it's never a binary thing. There's not like one thing you want, right? But there's a set of values yeah. that you want And those are the values that you, like even us, like we didn't want to grow at all costs, right? Like we didn't want to be a large company at all costs. We wanted to like protect certain aspects of our culture. We wanted to protect certain aspects of like the value people were getting, et cetera. And so I think that's the biggest thing is like the personal. And then another question is, is like, is it the right time for funding? So there might be, Mm -hmm. funding might be off the table for a bunch of things, um, for a bunch of the the personal reasons. But then it's like, no, I want to build a big company. And then is it the right time? ProfitWell mm-hmm. did not raise money at all, but we should have raised money probably four or five years ago, like 100%. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is because one, one point we should have raised money is, and this is pure hindsight, we wouldn't have known at the time, so we wouldn't have done it. We should have raised money when we realized we were doing a free product in a financial space that required accuracy. Mm-hmm. Should have raised money. Mm-hmm. Um, would have shaved probably a year off of our trajectory. And then the other time we should have raised money is like when we started getting really good repeatable growth out of our sales team. Just should have raised money. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, the speed, you know, dump the money in, speed goes out. And our metric, we were like really proud of like our LTV to CAC ratio. And it was like, no, yeah. like that's super cute. But it also means that like, we're not growing fast enough because we're not investing as much, you know, because we're, we're getting all yeah. this like, you know, this low CAC, like we're not investing. So those are the two things I think are really important. And I don't know, ultimately, like you got to be at peace with your decisions. And I think if we do those proactively, it makes the journey that much harder or that much easier, sorry. Because if Dave theoretically had that thought process before he started Chartable or like right in the beginning, if it blew up, mm-hmm he did the thing he was supposed to do. If he sells it, great. He did the thing he was supposed to do. Yeah. How, how, did, how do you do the calculation? I mean, obviously it's hard. Yeah. But it sounds like you recognized the, the threat and the opportunity of the billing side. I, I think I read another interview, or no, you said this in your, in your acquisition blog post, that you had met the people from Paddle and you had said to your engineer, like, hey, if we're going to build billing, we got to do it now because these guys are doing it the way I would do it. Yep. So obviously you were thinking about that threat and opportunity. And there's like this threading of the needle of like, yeah. if we don't move now, like we either, we either partner up with somebody else, get acquired, whatever, or we may miss our window of opportunity here. Yeah. Or we have to raise money and build it ourselves. How how do you think founders should be thinking about that? About the threats and the opportunities and the timing? Yeah. It's very possible John and I could hold on to transistor longer than it we should. We should, yeah. It's really hard to come to peace with some of these things when like 
before you should, but that's what you should really focus on. So what I mean by that yeah. is like you and John, like, I don't know what your conversations are like, but maybe it's like, Hey, we want to keep growing. Here are some of our non-negotiables though. We don't want to raise money. That changes the stakes. That changes our outcome, whatever it is. We, yeah, I don't want to work more than X hours a week. You, we both don't want to work that much or, or whatever. I mean, not saying you're not working, but you get what I'm saying. We don't want to work 80 hours a week, right? Yeah. Whatever those are. And we will grow at the pace that sustains these four things. And if that means that this is a 10-year product, or if that means that this is only a three-year product because someone comes in and eats us up, totally fine. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? That's getting yeah. at peace with that. I think for us, so the conversation that you're reading, um, I had interviewed Christian, the CEO of Paddle, um, this was actually four or five years ago. That's when that that took place. Yeah, and we think about the world, ProfitWell and Paddle. We think about the same way, like in a very, I would say, unique way. And the way that we think about things is, and I think it's true. First, kind of 10, 15 years of SaaS in this market was all about creating products that, like, just kind of like sh helped me show my boss that I was doing work. Or like gave me this like infrastructure to kind of do the work. And what I mean by that is like you were the expert. You were the expert sitting in your chair and they just enabled you to use your expertise, right? I think this next wave that we're in is the software creator is choosing problems where they should know better. Because I don't, I, I think we were tweeting about this. Justin, yeah, I don't know how to get podcast subscribers. You know more about podcasts than I do. Just do it for me. Yeah. Same with hosting, right? Like I don't, like even that part, like I don't know how to like host everything. I don't want to figure this out. Just do it for me, right? And that's what Transistor does. It was just so beautiful. And so long story short, when I met Christian, I'd never heard someone talk that way except us. We were the ones who always talked about the way. Yeah. He like finished my, like literally finished my sentence. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was like a kismet moment. And I literally left and called Facundo and I was like, hey man, this, this is the first person I've ever met that gets it. We should build this. Like if, if we're going to build it, we should build it. Um, but to answer your question, I think that it's really hard. Like you have to have that thesis. And then I think you have to have those pre pre conversations about what is the outcome you want and then be very open to those outcomes. Like, and it has to be like, I mean, we've all heard the fable about the, the the guys in the boat or the guys stranded and God, why wouldn't you help me? And God's like, well, I sent you the yeah. boat. I sent you the person. I sent those four people to help you and you didn't take it, right? So you do have to take the opportunities, right? It's not going to just come to you. Yeah. But like, if you have those conversations up front, like we had slides in our board deck, here are our potential acquirers. Here's where status is with all those conversations. And we had that slide in that conversation for years before we actually like did anything about it. Like we understood, like mm -hmm. here's where the market was. Here's where we could go, right? Um, we also had a slide about who we could acquire as well. And then in terms of identifying the market, a lot of the market will come to you. Like you'll be big enough, like you'll have made those relationships with the right people. And then all of a sudden, like, Hey, I was thinking about this. Like we have this new strategy for mm -hmm. the next year. Like you guys would fit into it and want to talk. And then you can make those decisions based on that. Yeah. Yeah. When I think there's also, I mean, it's tricky because there's so many dynamics. I, I'm sure. in my forties and which I never uh, believe. I think John I still don't believe it. John, <laughs> you look so young. You look think, such like a child. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think John has the same feeling though of, we are kind of an old school company, you know, mm. we're like an, uh, like transistors, a, a, a fairly simple product with a very small team. 
And if, if the next generation of SaaS, for example, is instead of paying for Canva, where you go in and you create these things, and they've done some for you, they have templates. Yeah. But the next version of Canva is some sort of AI that just takes all your inputs and generates, um, what you, need, yeah. you know, all of these assets for you and then shows you how to deploy them. You know, the next version of podcasting would be like the hardest part is content, right? And that's where we've, the dynamics of the market really rely on uh, people being incredibly motivated. Yeah, creative. <laughs> like most of our churn happens, you know, when I email people and I email them manually still yeah. when they cancel. I say, hey, just notice you canceled. Yeah. You know, what's going oh, on? I didn't want to do it anymore. And, yeah. the, and it, uh, most of the times they have zero or one episodes. That's yep. the that's the biggest one. And, um, you know, if they get 10 episodes, they're much more likely yeah. to stick around. If, you know, if they create an episode and submit it to Spotify, more likely to stick around. If they create an episode and then figure out how to submit to Apple, very likely to stick around. Like, it's just these hoops are... But... The next version of podcasting could be all AI-based. It's like you don't even need to um, do anything anymore. You just, like, get it to generate the the content for you. It has your voice. It automatically um, spits it out, and then you just get to upload it. And it's based on, like, let's say it can create a podcast for you automatically based on your tweets and your blog posts from the past month. And everyone you interacted with, and it just and it just does it, and it's done for you. So I maybe think, that's the next version. Yeah, I would say that that's. I don't think that's the next version. I think that that's. So the the one part of the thesis that I didn't talk about is that, I think that the product and the team and the customer, are still going to be reserved by whoever your. Um, serving whatever type of business or mm-hmm. type of customer. So like in your case, I'm still going to want to create the podcast, right? Now there's a bunch of things around the podcast creation that like Riverside should do more of. There's a lot of things around mm-hmm. the distribution that I think you guys should do more of. Like there's a bunch of automatable things around that that are probably up there. I don't think, I do think some people will do like some automated podcasts like Siri, Frankenstein monster kind of a thing. But like, I think it's more yeah. what I would do if I was trying to like look into this thesis for how it could better, you know, help my business. I would do all of the steps between pre idea all the way through to like successful podcast. And I would just line those out mm-hmm. and I would categorize them based on probably creative, pre-production, post-production, during, like I'd categorize like five or six categories, five or six colors on all those steps. And then I would look at the color that most aligns towards Transistor and be like, hmm, these three things, they're like right next to what we're already doing. They don't really require that much lift and they would be a differentiator. These three things, yeah, I have no idea how we would solve those problems if we could, that would be genius, but like, I'm no idea. So we're going to put those in the back burner, right? That's how I would look at this. Like, and I think that's, that's how you can fix that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's other, there are probably adjacent things. And again, the nice thing is you get to fit that to, well, then you get to decide on the trade-offs. Do we want to hire more people? 
Do we want to raise money? Here's my transistor idea. I want you to create an ad campaign right from whatever episode. And you can use the cover yeah. art. And you just, I don't know, like you just automatically spit it out. It's probably a million times more complicated than I think it is. And then just give me a button. Hey man, just click this button. And I'd be like, okay, like I'm going to set this up because I think that that's yeah. like, I'll, I'll manually do it on my end. But like, there's something there for like podcast distribution. And I don't know, there's, there's, there's something there beyond what you're doing, but that's what I want. That's what I want as one user. Like, like you want an automated uh, promotion campaign for a podcast? Yes. I don't know what, because there was a good thread, I'm sure you saw it, I think it was NPR or something like that, that talked about where most podcast promotion, like for charting and for a bunch of other things, comes from like good ad campaigns, where like they do ad campaigns because Apple, Spotify, et cetera, they value like the new users or whatever. I couldn't remember all the, the details of it. But it was one of those things yeah. where I read that and I was like, that's great because I can get all the users already on my list, but I want other users, right? So I've run like... I can't remember what's the podcast platform. It's got really simple ads you can grab. Overcast? Uh, yeah, I've done Overcast ads and that works pretty well. But I know that there's mm -hmm. like, and again, I'm not an expert in Facebook, LinkedIn, all these other stuff, but like, just give me a button. Cool, there we go. The episode's out or the podcast or whatever it is. Well, and certainly the the most fertile ground for that would be um, uh, dynamically inserted ads in other podcasts Great. That have a similar audience to you because that's where most of the uplift happens. The reason that all the networks are advertising each other's shows, you know, like Malcolm Gladwell, I'm I'm guessing 80% of their like lift for a new show just comes from promoting other on other, yeah. other podcasts and even in their own network because yeah. you're reaching people where they're at. Totally. Right? Well, that might be that idea. I'm realizing now I think about more. This might be beyond the values you and John have set, like in terms of like, we're going to need seven people just for that one feature. But yeah, yeah. No, I uh, think we're actually, on that one, I think we're close because now we have a simple dynamic ad insertion tool. Oh, that's cool. And so we can create a layer on top, which says we will help you guys cross-pollinate. That's great. And uh, we can do it manually at first, just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, this MVP. is just for shows that have more than a thousand listeners and then we'll, We'll match you up. That's great. But eventually, that could be that could happen for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one question I have because we're dealing with this right now. Did do your employees have equity? How do how do you guys figure that stuff out? Yeah. So I think I'm going to do a thread about this tomorrow, um, or at least this week. Um, what's funny is the previous startup I was at did not, in my opinion, handle equity in a great way. Like everyone got equity, mm -hmm. but they were really cagey about the value of that equity. Like they would be like, you get this many shares, but they wouldn't describe like what that was worth, right? And this was 10 mm -hmm. years ago where that was more common. Yeah. So with ProfitWell, we very much focused on like, okay, like if there's an exit, am I supposed to get 80% of this thing? Like, is that how that works, right? Mm -hmm. Like. I think I should get mm -hmm. a really large chunk and probably maybe the biggest chunk, probably the biggest chunk. But like, I don't know, the story is like, the MailChimp story, I mean, MailChimp's, it's, it's, it's obviously a great success, but like, it felt, and I don't know how it felt to them, like, I think they set expectations with their team really well, but like, it probably felt weird that like, the team 
or very few people in the team had equity. Like they got a bonus, but like mm-hmm. it was an eleven billion dollar exit. Like it's yeah, that, that feels weird, right? Like I don't know. Like and and it, it's an emotional and personal thing. So what we did is, um, interestingly enough, when we were talking about this, Andrew Mason, the Groupon guy and the Descript guy, now he published this article when he was doing Detour, which was like an actually really cool idea, and um, he ended up talking about how like they did this progressive equity system where it was like basically the the founder would definitely get the most, but it was like not egregiously the most. So we didn't do something specific as that, but yeah, everyone had equity. Um, we accelerated everyone's vesting as long as they were with the company for more than a year. We did a bunch of things to like help basically make sure that. So was this stock options? Like you, 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 you gave them options or? No, it's kind of cool is like they had what are called, um, uh, LLC profit interests, basically, or membership interests. Uh, okay. You're an LLC. Yeah. And so, which was a whole nother complicated thing to figure out. Um, but I think that was, yeah, that was kind of the benefit is like, once you had your shares, you technically owned them, which was kind of cool. Like you didn't have to, there was no strike price, um, anything like that. They were basically founder shares, which is kind of great. Um, and so yeah, they, um, didn't have to exercise them. They didn't, they, if they left, we had plenty of people get, you know, good amount of money like that don't work here anymore. Um, you know, which, you know, I think is great. Now at the end of the day, like I got a lot. Uh, so, so only, to only say that, um, bluntly, I have more money than many generations of my family will ever need. And so it was one of those things that, um, like it still is weird because even though we did this, it's like, it, I don't, I don't want to say there's guilt cause I worked my butt off for it, but there's a little bit of guilt of like, well, I have this much this person, like, did I really do X more than they did? Like, I don't know. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and so, um, it's an interesting, and I think this is also a very personal thing. Like don't leave yeah. that exit. I wanted to make sure everyone was like, not necessarily happy because I think, you know, people can be unhappy. Like we had people cry over $10,000, like tears of joy. Mm-hmm. Like, and then we had people yeah. pissed off. They were only getting a hundred thousand dollars. Like, it, like money is a really weird yeah. thing with people. And so long story short, just be, just make sure you're like, you know, you don't regret how, how, how it looks or not how it looks, but you don't regret how it all shakes out. Um, at the end, I think that's an important thing. Yeah. Well, congrats, man. Thanks brother. Like to have an, to have an exit, I've always felt like it's okay to start a company for money. Yeah. And uh, I, I also came from, uh, you know, quite meager means. My, yeah. Not a wealthy family. I also ha- lived m- m- many years of my life, like working a paycheck, but working hard. Yeah. And trying to feed kids and pay for a mortgage and everything else. Yeah. And I think it's okay and it should be celebrated when 100%. founders have a good exit. So congrats. I think it's Thanks, great. Brother. I think it's great that that you uh that you did well and now that you've got this new adventure with uh with Paddle. It's yeah. it's pretty awesome. I'm pretty excited. And yeah. and yeah, I'm sure you'll I'm sure there'll be a lot more well, we'll see a lot more content out of Paddle, I'm guessing. Is that <laughs> is that the next part? Yeah. There's there's uh I, I think I tweeted rather cheekily in it, but I mean it. Like, if you ever wanted to see what we could do with funding, uh, get ready because it's it's going to be exciting. Like, we like people don't realize like one people don't realize we're the only bootstrap company in our space, but also like to do some of the ideas we did, we were like scraping by and doing like 
terrible decision-making around like, you know, oh, we have to squeeze this amount of this or that. And now we don't have to worry about all of those decisions anymore. And so it'll, it should be a good time. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting. The, um, for you, you to experience the other side of that. Cause if you were quite frugal before, you know, there's pros and cons to everything, but sometimes certainly, uh, the disadvantage of frugalness is that you're not willing to try more experiments that could just waste yep. 10 grand, for example. Are we willing to make this 10 grand bet? Yeah. No. Well, maybe we should make that 10 grand bet because that 10 grand bet might turn into 100 grand. Yeah. That would be a good bet, you know? There'll be a lot of good so, bets. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Congrats again. Congrats to you and your team. Thanks, brother. All the best. All the best luck. Appreciate and, it. And uh, let's, let's chat again in like six months and see how things are going over there. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to follow Patrick on Twitter. He is Paticus. All of the links are in the show notes. And let me do some shout outs to our monthly supporters on Patreon. We have Jason Charns. By the way, Jason, thanks for mentioning Transistor during your Rails talk. That We really appreciate that. Mitchell Davis, Marcel Fale, Alex Payne, Bill Kondo, Anton Zorin, Mitch, Harris-Kenny, Oleg Kulig, Ethan Gunderson, Chris Willow, Ward Sandler, Russell Brown, Noah Prail, Colin Gray, Austin Loveless, Michael Sitfer, Paul Jarvis, and Jack Ellis, Dan Buda, Darby Frey, Brad from Canada, Adam Duvander, Dave Junta, and Kyle Fox from GetRewardful.com. See you next time. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.